Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? I feel like I'm jogging. Jogging where? I'm jogging through the windmills of my mind. The windmills of your mind? What yes. are they like? Is it like... There are corridors. Corridors? There are like long hallways. Are they tiled? They are tiled with these kind of like white square tiles. Like 1970s I... style? Yeah, exactly. Are you wearing heels? I am wearing heels. And what noise are you making? Kind of like clickety-clack. Oh my God. And I feel really good about myself. Yeah, I feel good about that as well. And the reason I, I feel like I'm jogging is because today's guest has actually been a constant... Uh, through my whole experience in the art world and I sort of realised it as I was researching this episode because I had no idea like we don't sort of text each other we're not like friends in the sense that you know like you and I are we talk every day that kind of thing but our guest today is somebody that has been there the whole time that I've sort of been visiting galleries and we met when I was really young I think when we were like maybe 26 or something Mm. like mid 2000s I've sort of seen her grow like over the same time that I've been growing in the art world Mm -hmm. and it's been an amazing privilege to see the kind of way you've just like rocketed basically and taken over the world in many ways because you've now shown your your work all over the world yeah Yeah. even in the Venice Biennale last year Mm -hmm. and in the Tate Museum in London Mm -hmm. a number of times Mm -hmm. yeah and I've been very very inspired by today's guest um there was a show in 2012 in colchester at first sight which is pretty much one of the best exhibitions i probably ever saw by anybody was it a solo it was a solo exhibition um curated by michelle cotton and i actually went to the preview or the opening of that and hung out with today's guest yeah and that show still to this day like sticks in my mind so that is in the windmills of my mind amazing and um yeah so we're very proud to be speaking with um anthea hamilton Hamilton. Hello. Hi. How are you doing today, Anthea? I'm all right. You guys are smooth. That was good. We, we did sort of uh, choreograph that one slightly before you turned up. Thanks. <laughs> it's all for you. Um, so I'm going to start off with saying that you are a Turner nominee. In 2016, you were nominated for the Turner Prize. Now, I want to ask a question because everything doing research, it says Turner nominee, Turner nominee. So how does that feel for an artist that that forever will be a handle that is going to be bracketed by your name when people talk about you in the art world? Yeah, I guess I always try and pull it off. Like I always Do you? Try, I always try and take, you know, you kind of think, well, I was alive before that moment. I was doing other things. And this was just like <laughs> a, a kind of really busy six months of my life when that, that show is happening. And you yeah. think, I don't know, you're kind of, it's interesting. It's, it's kind of something that once you go through it, 
you understand, you can look at other people who've been through it in a different way because it kind of does alter your perception on, I don't know, exhibition making or turner prize making and things like that. So it, it's kind of more like, a, how would you say it? I don't know. I don't know how you would say it. I'll come, I'll come back to is it. Like, is it like once you've been through the gauntlet, then you can have that, when, you, when you're saying that other Turner nominees or winners, mm-hmm. you can all connect and go like, that experience was crazy. Wasn't that a mad thing? And now we're all at the other side. And isn't that weird that we've had that experience? I guess it's because it's like exhibition making beforehand or being working as an artist before. It's a very private experience, mm. right? That you're just kind of in your studio with your peers, right, with people yeah. that you want to speak to, or you think you can understand what people outside of your kind of close network are, are thinking about or reacting to with your work. And then you go through that process and then you realise that, oh, I probably had it completely wrong. And in fact, we live in quite a, we're kind of practicing quite a limited space, which is nothing wrong with that, especially, but yeah, it kind of pulls you into a different, I don't know. I felt like I put, I kind of went above the radar for a little while. Mm. And then it's like, oh, I just can't wait to go back under the radar. Really? Yeah. Yeah, And the thing is with the Turner Prize, you suddenly have this massive audience of people that have maybe Mm -hmm. never even heard of your work Mm -hmm. or knew you existed or anything. And you're presenting your ideas to like this massive kind of mainstream audience. I mean, I've seen it this year in Margate with Mm -hmm. the with the um, Turner Prize. And it's it's fascinating the, um, the kinds of different audiences you suddenly are, you know, presenting your work to. Mm. Whereas if you think back to that show in Colchester that I came to, there was only like 10 of us there or something yeah. that day. And we were walking around with you and it was very personal and private. Mm. And I don't know. So, yeah, it is. And also that year it was at Tate Modern, right? No, Tate, Tate Britain. Where was Tate it? Tate Britain. The Tate Britain. Yeah. Was that, and that, so that in itself is going to have a massive audience like the one in Margate has been like a bit of a trailblazer because so many people have travelled to Margate for yeah, the Yeah, but I guess the proximity as well to the rest of the country, like getting to yeah. Margate is actually quite easy on the train yeah, compared yeah, yeah. to other places where it's been, I think. But having a Turner Prize at the Tate is like a, a an event in itself as well, isn't it? I guess so, because I guess you also start to understand that these things about the Tate's idea of how to present contemporary art in a kind of a very broad way also. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, you kind of find yourself participating in this kind of very public way of mm-hmm. explaining what contemporary art mm-hmm. is to people who have their own ideas anyway. So it kind of gets doubled down within that. Yeah, I remember waking up at one point during the process and thinking, oh, I've made, I'm going to make a big bum for the Turner Prize. That's right. <laughs> Whoops. You know, like maybe that wasn't the way to go <laughs> with that one. Because what, uh, So you felt like that because of the prize you, you were going to think on that scale? Do you think you might not have come up with that idea at that time? You'd made you made it before been... that, hadn't you, in, in yeah. New York? No, it was, for the, it was for the Sculpture Centre. Yeah. And because it was for New York, it felt like you could do anything in New York. You know, yeah. they've, seen, they've seen it all. They see big bums, you know, 24-7. You know? Yeah, also, yeah, yeah. The, the initial um, idea that you were responding to was another artist's um, drawings, you know, like a like a proposal mm-hmm. by Gaetano Pesce. Pesce, Gaetano Pesce. Pesce. He's one of the radical Italian designers from the late, late 60s, early 70s. He's still practicing now and doing many other things and I think I like this idea of this proposal that was a ridiculous a ridiculous, a ridiculous idea the something which no one would ever go for kind of. <laughs> so you'd you'd walk through the butthole and that would be the entrance to an apartment block in yeah. Manhattan yeah on the Upper East Side so you know just kind of like the the wealthiest of the wealthiest in New York kind of would walk through a bumhole yeah to get home yeah to get home <laughs> and if, <laughs> Why you, haven't, if you haven't seen this Why and you're listening never... it's like a giant giant um, backside. Like what was it going to be made bum. out of? Like his one. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Bricks, bricks and mortar, probably. Oh, I guess uh, Gaetano's practice was very much is very much kind of focused on like new materials. And mm. the reason why he had made that model was because silicon rubber was a new thing, and he wanted to know what silicon could do. Ah. And so he was like, oh, well, let's. Uh, but was he up, was he upset at the time that it never got came to fruition? 
Oh, I think it, it was just a. I think it was like a folly. A folly. Yeah, right, right, right. He, he was just um, he was just giving it a go, or just kind of pointing out how conservative architecture, even in its wildest, tends to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. How yeah. shocking that would have been. Yeah. So why did you why did you connect with that big bum, and why did you <laughs> want to bring that? Um, why I think I. The truth, the truth of it is, mm. is that when I went for the meeting with Rubika Troop, who was the curator I was working with at the Sculpture Centre, I love where her. The show is. She's incredible. I think she's an incredible curator. I think she kind of changed. She definitely has changed the way in which I've worked. Also, like really, very, very free, very but also very involved, but in, in a, a different way to other curators I've worked with. I think do you like? Do you like a curator to be quite involved in your work? Very much so. Oh, really? I think I'm quite needy when I work with someone. I'm just. Oh. I need a lot of hand holding and a lot of uh, nagging. Also, yeah, yeah, yeah. Done. But, and would you like a curator to tell you if you're if you're doing good or doing bad at the same time? Like me as an actor, mm-hmm. I want a director to tell me, give me notes. But also when I'm doing a good job, mm-hmm. I want them to like hold my hand and go, thumbs up. That's really cool. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like um, a lot. I just I think I guess I'm quite. I just want a lot. I don't. I don't mind. Yeah, getting a lot of criticism, being told it's no good, or think it again, or do it again, or. <laughs> Yeah, just a lot. I think a lot of contact because I kind of think oh, that's kind of how I get energy for things. Like I need to have people around me a lot, and right. so a lot of things happen in conversation. Yeah, yeah. I can yeah. spend ages on my own in the studio, and then have a meeting, and then resolve the whole thing. I think, yeah, oh, yeah, why yeah. didn't we do this at the beginning? But you're a big mm. collaborator, aren't you? Yeah. Like you like to collaborate with other artists, but also you see your audience as collaborating in your work as well, right? I guess so. I think maybe that was something. Well, yeah, definitely. I guess so because you know they're the ones who look at it too. Like I'm looking at it once and then they see it another way and mm. I don't necessarily think that my way is the only way in which something can happen mm. yeah so with Ruba when you were working with her in New York so what what was the process of you 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 had like documentation of that um you know folly this idea mm-hmm. of of that giant bum and that was in your own archive because you, you you keep a kind of archive do you of of things Bound that inspired you or... yeah it's not very it's not very special maybe it's but I think maybe the thing that's particular about it is, is a lot of images, right? Or printed images, these kind of like quite fixed things. Yeah. And so I had a, a meeting with Ruba. She's, you know, the sculpture center is this big brick building, mm. and she's like, "Can you think of something big to do?" And I didn't necessarily have like a wealth of ideas. Yeah. You know, I just had a kid at this time, so kind of my mind was elsewhere, and so it kind of came up as a conversation point. I've, I've talked quite a lot. I've done a lot of artist talks, and I always show a picture of the, the model. The, the oh really? And. Just as a way, like, you know, can someone, like if someone shares the same sense of humour as me, that's normally like a good starting point for working with someone, right? Like if you can kind of laugh at the same things or be upset by the same things, you know, if you can kind of share share stuff. And so I kind of showed it to her and said, well, this is interesting to me. And she was quite like, okay, I think we can do that. And that kind of, yes... That's so cool. Was enough. So was you not expect you wasn't expecting her to be like let's do, let's make this massive. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I thought there might be a bit more, but I, I kind of it's like well, I can't like this idea in collaboration or impro- improvisation that the, you need a yes to kind of keep it going, course, right? That like yeah. you can't kind of shut things down. Yeah. And that yes, even though it was to like a big, a big but, meant that there were lots of other things that had to be resolved, right? Like it wasn't the entirety of the show. It's like how do you then? make everything else make sense in in relation to this. And actually, that exhibition had a really great um, suit hanging mm-hmm. in, in, in air, basically, um, with red bricks mm-hmm. um, printed onto the suit. And you've used, like, clothes and that material of, like, fabric, like cotton or different materials mm. throughout your, your whole career, really. Um, and how did that come about? Was that responding again to the building? Like, you were talking about the sense of it being bricks? Because there was something quite surreal about that as well. Like mm. you know, It felt to me like... A Joseph Boyce felt suit as oh, yeah. well. That's what it reminds me of. Did you ever like have that sort of image in your mind? 
Maybe not. I think it's too it's too art art based a reference. Right, I think right. I, mm-hmm. I think I had been looking at like a lot of Moschino fashions, and there had oh, right, been right. there had been a, a suit in one of those collections. I think ninety six or ninety seven. Wow. And I thought this is a really good way to be in the city, kind of camouflaging, but also completely standing out yeah, at the yeah, same yeah. time. And so it was a remake of that, or my own version of that. Um, and that was from 2010, and it was initially um, sparked as, oh, what would you call it, like a commission or a, a product for House of Voltaire when they did their first iteration of the shop. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was meant to be something that people could have, and it was a bespoke item. And the House of Voltaire is uh, an offshoot of Studio Voltaire, which is an institution in Clapham in London, which is run by an amazing guy called Joe Scotland. And House of Voltaire is a fundraiser that they do biannually or every every year. Almost like every year. Yeah. Every year. And, they even and have a, a website of, as well. And a lot of artists contribute uh, works of art that go towards funding the studio programme. And actually, there. Russell and I were talking yesterday. We both have your fan yeah. that you made. Man you fan. made an edition of a fan, yeah. yeah. Um, which came in a beautiful box as well with a kind of like gold writing on it yeah. or whatever. It was a really beautiful edition. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, so going back to the bum and the architect, uh, Gatano Pesche. Pesche? Pesche. Mm. Good, that sounds more Italian to me. He He's still alive. And yeah. is he aware that this work was created? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to meet him. I thought if I'm going to kind of invest in kind of remaking somebody's work, I thought it would be good to try and meet them in case they were not someone whose work I wanted to kind of... You meet him and you're like, oh, yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, he was... He was a... It was great. I mean, I was completely lost in the moment. I was like a, like a fangirl. Oh, so you did actually meet him? Yeah, we so went how did that come about? Did you? Um, he, there was like an amazing kind of, that whole show was kind of an amazing moment of lots of different people coming together. So um, also uh, there was a link through Valeria Napoleoni, who's a patron who was at that time starting to support the Sculpture Centre, mm-hmm. who had a personal connection to Gaetano. So then there was a chance to have the introduction. Oh, wow. So we went Is she his... Italian, Napoleoni? Yeah. Yes, right, okay. So we went to his studio in on Broadway oh. in New York. Oh, my God. Oh, so he's based in New York as well? Yeah, he's based in New York. He has his studio out in Brooklyn and then is also working in Milan also. How old is he now? I think he must be late 80s, 87. So what, so what was that like then? I mean, I lost it. I couldn't really speak. You know, like Really got shy. Proper fangirling. Yeah. Like, I know, I don't often do that. Was you I a mean, fan of him before the bum anyway? Before the bum, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah, and I used to go to the library all the time, really kind of really geeky, and just like look at all these books. Yeah. And his was the one that I was always like, this is not, I should have brought it along, got him to sign it or something. Because, yeah, and he had, you know, it's this kind of an amazing relationship to materials that all of the works, all these kind of furniture pieces or design pieces, they just kind of rely on the materials doing whatever it is that they want to do, and yeah. kind of shaping that. And so, um, was he a nice guy? Yeah, he was. And I, just, I couldn't speak. I was, I didn't know what to say. I, I felt kind of like a, you mean like a hero? Naive. Yeah, I was very naive and I felt like buried, like I didn't have much kind of ground to stand on. It must have been quite interesting for him because it was an unrealised project. Yeah. And then somehow there's a, a younger artist who's, you know, like been inspired 50, by 50 his work years later and then or something. helping to realise it, but in a new way and in a new context as well. Yeah, I still feel like we haven't really realised it because it's still not on that apartment Where building. is it now? Oh, yeah. The bum. Yeah. Well, there was two of them. I've got parts of it in my studio. But little really? bits of bum. Yeah, fingers. Fingers, <laughs> fingers of bum. Fingers and bum. Fingers oh, fingers! And oh, right, the fingers. Oh, the fingers that are holding the bum apart. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. You've got those. Yes, yeah, so you're right. It's not. It's not. It's actually a very different work, isn't it, to what he imagined? Because you've somehow put it in a gallery it into space. Else. Yeah. Yeah, it's still reframing. It's kind of scaled up, but it's still a proposal. It's a quotation of a proposal. So it's yeah. It's kind of. More... Would you ever build a house one day and put that as your doorway? 
why not? Exactly. Good. If you can, why not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you said you're a geek, which I love that about you. Is that a good thing? It's a bit tiring, really. Right. Being a geek? Being a geek. Not really a geek, just being like, I don't know. I'd say so. I'm quite delicate. I get really tired really easily. Do you? Yeah. But you, you, need, you need lots of information to come your way because of that kind of strivingness to know everything. <laughs> like, where do you find all your images and stuff? How do you... Is it junk shops or just... Not so, I guess it used to be. I yeah. think I might start again, like, going to flea markets and stuff. I think I had a big purge. Mm. I think I've kind of met somewhere between wanting to be an absolute minimalist... Yeah. But also liking lots of stuff. stuff. Same. And I don't know I don't know where, where I should be on that. I know. I read a really good quote that you said once about one of the because you've used different um kind of cultural references throughout your work. And one of them was the Kabuki Theatre. And you said that there was this kind of paradox between um the kind of overly theatrical and expressive and kind of like hyper real in a way, and then the very kind of pragmatic almost like, you know, very down-to-earth, um, sensible side to it. And you have these kind of two opposing energies, which when I read that, I was like, that kind of is what I would describe what you do in a way, like within a lot of your work. You mm-hmm. have these kind of like contrasts the whole time mm. of like very overtly expressive theatrical kind of exper- uh, expressions mm. um, versus very kind of matter-of-fact, everyday kind of, I don't know. Mundanities, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because your material, the everyday, is kind of like a lot of your references. Yeah, I guess I'm always just like trying to process. I think a lot of my work is about just trying to think about what it is I'm doing on a day to day basis, and being an artist doing that. Like, you know, what do you do when you're suddenly offered a commission in the middle of Tate Britain? Like, how do you, how do you kind of deal with that? Like, mm. <clears throat> how did you deal with that? What What did that feel like? I think the first thing. Well, I don't know. It, I, mean, I did a lot of hand-holding through that one. <laughs> you, you did. <laughs> Praise to... I can imagine, though. It must be such a sort of massive Honor, thing but to terrifying. take on. It's yeah. huge as well, that space. I don't think it's the size of things really? that okay. matters. It's more like the the, the institution... The, the, the weight of the, that. Or the weight of the institution's impression of itself kind of Got offering it. itself to you. You know, like it's, right. a, it's a corridor, really, that leads to Into the other cafe. rooms. Yeah. <laughs> Straight it's down a to corridor that, that leads to the cafe. It is. It is. You know, like, well, when you watch people in there, that's actually what's happening. They're kind of like moving through and then either going to the shop, the loo, the cafe, or leaving. You know, that's, <laughs> yeah. you right. Know, you know, that, that, that space there is particularly... Um, so you have to think, like, you know, of how interested are people really in looking in those spaces? It's different to a commercial gallery where you do make that journey or it's different to, I don't know, a space like the Taint is somewhere that people, not everyone, but people do pass through or, you know, there is an expected kind of way of behaving in that space, yeah. which is kind of, there's many things. But I think what you ended up creating, so for people who didn't see this, it was a few years ago, and um, Anthea actually tiled the whole of the Devine With galleries. the white tiles that you clicked with these, back along. Yeah, which yeah. I referenced in the introduction to this yeah. podcast. But they were the very square. You created this kind of grid, which if you think about the history of art and painting and many different things, even in Kabuki theatre, you often have these kind of grid-shaped um, mm. floors. or um, And it almost created a kind of, well, it was like a platform, wasn't it, for the performers that you then, you had dancers um, who you um, had 
uh, worked with J.W. Anderson, Jonathan Anderson, the fashion designer, to uh, develop an earlier idea that you had um, from a photograph, another a, found photograph yeah. of a man dressed as a vegetable, Latin American performance artist, as a squash. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so you created these characters that had this squash head, and they inhabited this world that you created in the Devine Galleries at the Tate Britain. How, how did that, the concept of that, how did that all come about then? How did, for, when they said, right, this is what you're going to do, and this is how, what you come up with? I think the only thing that I did know that I wanted was that I wanted there to be one person in the gallery at all time that was the only that was the only thing I knew for months and months and months is that that they needed to be one person in there the whole time you know mm. for the what, duration as a performer I wasn't even sure I didn't even necessarily think of them as performers they were just one one person present yeah. for the duration and it was the rest of it was a very long process of trying to figure out what would need to happen to make that so to kind of look after them to give them the space to I don't know I didn't think anyone actually would be bothered at all I don't think any audience person would be bothered to, that there could be like one person kind of slouching about in a museum yeah I didn't think that would be a point of interest so it was just about like what could I do for the person who was going to be in there that would kind of give them something to latch on to for, yeah. for their for their period of being in there um so the first thing that happened was well thinking that I didn't want them to be on the museum floor because that's too coded you know that kind of speaks of like pomp and neoclassicalism and mm. Um, and so let's get rid of that floor straight away. And then the only thing you can really afford at that kind of scale is the cheapest white tiles Yeah. going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then th- that was kind of one way of dealing with it. And it's like, well... Well, how did the museum react to that? How did you affix the tiles to the flooring? Oh, well, the curator, I worked with Lindsay Young, who's the um, curator of con- British contemporary art there, who's yeah. also um, was the curator for the Turner Prize. So I felt like Lindsay and Good I Good hand holder. Great handholder. She's an amazing human being generally. And she she's somebody who's been putting on shows for the last kind of 10 years, like in different spaces. And I used to go to some of the ones in East London. And they were just like the best thing I'd seen. It would be an artist you'd never heard of. And it's before she was working at Tate. And then when she got that job at the Tate, I was like screaming from the rooftops how happy I was because it was like, it felt like such a kind of genuine person that cared about art had actually been given a, a responsible position within power, a powerful place if you know what I mean mm. and I, th- I think it's so important and I'm so glad and she's gone on to do things in Venice as well hasn't she? She was the curator for Scotland in yeah. Venice with Charlotte Proger last yeah, again, oh, wow, which wow, was amazing wow. and yeah I feel like she she's definitely helping give a platform for important voices to be heard and mm. like she's brilliant. So tell us about the tiles so the tiles getting them on the floor <laughs> how does she help you do that? She she innovated a system that I didn't know what it was. Yeah. She was very good at um not having me worry. Yes. About okay, about stuff that wasn't too much for me to worry about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's actually pioneered a new system that you need to speak to her about. Great. Wow. We'll get her on. The, yeah, get so her she on. She was good with the kind of <laughs> she's gonna move into the facilitating the practicality of it all. <laughs> yeah, Tyler. If you're doing your your next bathroom, you could have an update. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want it, I want yeah, it. Yeah, coordinating. The, the thing I thought was really successful about the titles was A, it was such a shock. Like as because like you're saying we all go through those Devine halls mm. and even if there's art installed in there, often it is just kind of a place you're walking through because mm. you're going to see an exhibition in another room or see a permanent collection. You take for granted how you're going to receive art. In kind of, yeah. Mm. yeah. Whereas when I walked in there with the tiles, it was such a shock, a lot a lot of because of the fact it was so bright as well. There was this kind of like light that was created from those tiles. But also it made the space feel so much longer. But it made the space feel geometric. Yeah, and like and kind of like endless. It was like almost like, you know, the computer games. Yes, that's right. That you 
you kind of go into. Yeah, you're, like you're Tron in, or yes, something exactly like that. Yes, exactly that. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. yes me and I don't mean to be all like projecting onto your work something that isn't there because that's not cool. But that was the experience I yeah. had when I walked in there. And then to see these figures, because you created kind of like nooks and crannies almost, like where people could like sit, like chairs or... And you also um, had plinths um, with sculptures on them, but even the plinths had the tiles on. So it became this... What surrounded you it was a real environment to sort of walk into, but I, I found that incredibly sort of successful because of that uh, surprise, I guess, when you first walked in there. I guess that's that thing about you say maybe being pragmatic is that often when something is pragmatic, it, it normally is a surprise because it's the most straightforward solution. Right? Think, oh, is that really the most straightforward solution? And yeah, it is somehow. Um, but then there was all these other kind of levels to it because Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I wanted to do for a really long time and then this kind of figure this kind of performance figure Mm. that came from the image seemed to hold true somehow then I would keep having meetings and they would say what what is going to happen and I'd be like I don't know (laughs) I don't know like it maybe it's not up to me to know and so it was quite like a hard task of trying to hold on to keeping the commission but at the same time as Oh, was really? they? But did you feel like they were like having second like doubts about what you were propositioning? Or I'm not sure. I, I wasn't probably wasn't proposing anything in yeah. my head. It was starting to make sense. Yeah. But like, we go to the meeting and they say, "What's going to be in there?" And I'm like, "Oh, maybe a pumpkin." And then like, "What's a pumpkin going to do?" Oh, I don't know. What's it going to be made out of? Yeah, I, I'm, it's just I'm, like I'm a pumpkin, not, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, and it went on like that for ages. Which yeah. I guess is this thing that you do. Maybe other people do that in their studio where they hold on to the unsurety mm. by kind of kind of do that all in the room with other people mm-hmm. and the initial um photograph that you saw by this performance artist you then did uh the first uh iteration of that at the serpentine yeah um where you had just one dancer and one figure in a in an event wasn't it was it for park nights or one of those it was the magazine sessions which was supported by the fiorucci fiorucci art trust and yeah. the serpentine okay. and that was kind of a really long performance i'd spent years before thinking that mime was a very, very important thing that had been overlooked, mm. um, kind of. I thought it, but I, I quite like the idea that it was this really passe kind of art form or that um, people don't like it. Right. I like that, you know, like if a mime comes up to you in the street, you're like, mm. oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Um, it almost repels of, people, doesn't it? Yeah, and I quite like this idea of being trapped in a room with something that you'd maybe you don't want to look at, right. which is, a, which is a, a mime performance. So I kept, kept promoting... Prom- like uh, I kept, what's the word? Like offering this kind of mind performance. I'd like mm-hmm. to do this mind performance based mm-hmm. on this um, another architecture project by Mario Bellini and see how that's going. But it was always really, it was never successful and it was always really cringy and <laughs> it kind of always went wrong. And I think for those of us who were involved in it, it was kind of interesting. But to look at from the outside, it was always not very exciting. What, the actual so, one you did? Well, I think in the end at the Serpentine, what happened was I realised that if you could just ask people to be stuck in at the serpentine it was kind of like a, a captive audience yeah and so i kind of could force them to kind of watch a mime performance for about an hour and a half <gasps> yeah it's quite a long time that's isn't quite it? a long time for someone just to be trying to get out of a wall i know exactly so did you have any like um voice in the choreography of that i kind of i went with an amazing uh, movement director called delphine gabbering who um is able to translate your the, mind, my mind, yes. which she just kind of sees me kind of f- flubbering. And then she's like, ah, oh, you mean this? I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Wow. wow. Yeah, she's good. So was she involved when you got 
people involved at the tape when the squash came up there? I think when once I kind of had figured out that there was going to be a series of people performing, yeah. then uh, Delphine was like the go-to straight away. Wow. And she was able to take this kind of mood board of images that I had yeah. and kind of say to the guys, okay, when we did the auditions, it was really inter- interesting. She was like, okay, let's try this and let's try this and let's try this. How many people were you looking for? Um, I don't know. I mean, there was no, there was no, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. There, was, um, there was no set amount. And in the end we had 14, which was amazing. And there was more than 200 odd applicants. Really? Yeah. What I loved about it is that these were people from different walks of life creatively. So you had like uh, break dancers, you had ballet dancers, you had people that did physical theatre, you had actors, right? And you just said to them, you perceive how you think this vegetable squash person moves through the space, right? You let them have like license for their own sort of creation in the space, which I think is wonderful. But there has to was there some sort of parameters you set for them all at this time? And and how did you timetable fourteen people to work throughout the whole time? I think one of the main parameters was in there is that the people should never they should never perform for the audience. Right. It's like, oh, you know, right. if people are crowding around you, you should not then kind of be jazz handy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, they're there for their reasons and you're here for your reasons. So let's keep that separate. You know, so often they were sleeping and it's pretty boring, probably. Mm. I mean, I, I'd find it interesting, but, you know, it's probably pretty dull having to sit with this, like, heavy... Was it quite heavy, the squash head? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This kind of fiberglass, leather-clad kind of... Parameter head. itself, isn't it? The costume. Because the costume, the head is, you become this... You can't this... see out of it forwards, you can see down, right? You could, you could, there was like a tiny kind of... Pinhole. Pinhole at the end. Okay. Yeah, that people don't tell the tape. Was Yeah, if we kind of kept that quiet that no one could really see whole time right right, right. Um, but how long would they be performing would they have like an hour at a time and then they would like tap in tap out with the next squash um the rule for them was is that they had to be there between 10 and 6 every day but whether they they could have just been in you know the green room for the whole day if they wanted to if they didn't feel like they wanted to go out there they didn't have to at all it was just kind of they were being paid to be present in the museum um and then people just kind of practically there wasn't like a five-day shift but then everyone you know gets busy and then they all swap around so did you only have one at a time because at the opening i went to you had a number of people oh yeah i think everyone was there everyone was there in the opening and that was like a big party i think that was also to celebrate the kind of all the the hard work of it yeah Yeah. Yeah, so at one point you had 14 movement like characters going around oh no maybe all right i'm exaggerating so there were seven because when we went to jonathan jonathan anderson and said would you consider kind of working with us on the costumes, we didn't really know how many to ask for. Right. So we said, uh, seven, you know, one for every day of the week, thinking that probably we'd have to bargain and we yeah, would get yeah, two. Yeah. But he's amazing and said, yeah, sure, whatever you need. Wow. Just let us know whatever you want. So he's, I mean, Jonathan Anson, who is now the head of Loewe, and he was, that was J.W. Anson at the time, his own brand, his own label, or was he Loewe then? It was Loewe. It made right. real sense, actually, to kind of work with this kind of leather company this kind of very luxurious leather company spanish leather company yeah Yeah. and then also you know i felt i felt for these performers they were going to be kind of stuck in the museum yeah i wanted them to look amazing you know i wanted them to have their kind of best looks that they could have and so it kind of was a moment to kind of bring that all together how did you how did you start a relationship with jonathan did you know him prior to the Devine squash man show a, li- a little bit. I think he had curated me into a show at the Loewe store in Madrid that he does this Close Encounters series, uh-huh. and that was 2015, I think. And then I think maybe we had then... We had both been working on shows at the Hepworth Wakefield at the same time. Right. I was working on the rehanging of the Kettle's Yard collection, and he was working on the Disobedient Body show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we both kind of, I don't know, had this kind of crossover between British modernism, different understandings of it, different approaches, but... 
I think we he'd seen my work in person at that time. He's an amazing patron of the arts and a collector, and he collects your work. And currently now in the Wave store on Bond Street, there is, a, which was at the Hepfield, Hepford Wakefield... Hepworth. Hepworth Wakefield show that you reimagined is this uh, big table that has these glass um, sculpted tears mm-hmm. kind of pouring off of it that he has in store. So if anyone's passing the Wave store, you have to go in and check it out. But it's amazing. But what what is that like then having work bought and then placed in a, a shop like that? I think the only really stressful thing was that was how they, on earth they got it up a spiral staircase on oh, the really? first, first floor. And I just, I can't, that work, I'm, I really like that work because it's kind of blown glass to these slate tiles, but it's super fragile. And right. it's just, yeah. yeah, you always kind of get the report that, you know, it's like... Has there been breakages? Along the way, yeah. I think no one really knows. When we made it, it was made for a commission at the Palais de Tokyo right. in 2014. And I think we just kind of went with it. I worked with the glass blowers who were based in France at the time. And, mm. you know, when you're just kind of winging it and you're trying things out and yeah. it was a new process for them and I'd never worked in glass before... And you just think, yeah, we'll just stick, just stick it on, and then you realise you have to move it, and then. And the thing I love about that that table as well is that it's almost like molten lava. It kind yes. of has this like volcanic energy to it. But then I also like the practicality of it that you could maybe sit and use it. But is it is it actually not that easy to use? It's you, not roped off at you know all. I mean? I mean, people go. I'm sure people go up and touch it. They were the night the, the opening night there for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I like that gamble. I like this idea that. You know, I didn't. I, I made a point of not making painting, and I'm only just about making sculptures. You know, I want things to be inhabited or touched, or yeah. you know, like I'm you the do. way, and I'm excited about like materials. I think I want other people to be so too. And I guess it is a volcano. It's called the, the volcano table, yeah. but it's meant to be like a business table, like where you do your business and your exactly, emails yeah. and your yeah. telephone calls. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's got a vase for flowers, and that was from a it. found image as well. Yeah. Do you remember where that one was found? I was looking for some work of Gaetano Pesce's and it came up on a blog. And wow. I go back, every now and again, I go back to see if I can find out what those things were. You know, now there's more internet and more connections. And yeah. This one, I still I still can't um Get the original it. source. Yeah. I think I need to go to another level. I think I've been in, sometimes I'm in touch with design historians or, and quite often, yeah, they, they kind of go to these dead ends. What is it about, like, a... Uh, architecture and you saying you're a historian because I would definitely say you're a historian but what is it about that that really you are um, inspired by for fine art oh I knew you can ask that did you well <laughs> I don't know I don't, I don't know it's kind of maybe it's that I didn't I don't necessarily follow things you know like I love Matisse Mm. But I don't know when you when you're having this kind of conversation if that's really what you mean. Like you know, I think it's sometimes. I think growing up, I didn't know one could be an artist. Mm. I didn't know it was really like a career path. Well, you wanted to be an accountant at one point, didn't you? I was. I was six. I love counting. I was like, yeah. You're really good, good at maths. Yeah. <laughs> just like anything, anything that I was good at. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to do that. That's what I do. Like any kid. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever I'm good at. Um, yeah, and then I think I wanted to be an interior designer. Oh, so design then is definitely a, a thing like placing things in a room or like yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and I think this idea of finding solutions also like I was quite interested in what I thought advertising was this idea of like having a brief yeah and then trying to find like a solution that other people could understand you know this kind of mm. 
Yeah. I remember when we first met, you were represented at the time by a gallery called Ibid in London. And there was one point where you were going to like take the gallery over for a summer and make it a studio and you were going to live in the gallery because I guess they were between shows or something. And you said to me you were going to make a film. And I can't remember, but at the end of it, maybe you did make the film, but I remember you saying to me something like, you'd been making all these sets or sculptures that were going to be in the film, but you felt like they were enough and you didn't even necessarily need to make the film because the sculptures had become the narrative within the sculptures and the assemblage of like different objects and the relationship between them had become enough of a story or somehow. So some kind of, do you see what I mean? Like, Yeah, I remember that. I also remember that I kept asking people to film them. I kept like trying to film people. That's right, yeah. And I'd spend, it'd take days of people's time filming them and making them kind of just walk backwards and forth and then I cut all of that stuff. None of it was in the film <laughs> at all. I had people like laying naked, I had people kind of top lived, all this kind of really, you know, taking up people's time and then just putting kind of stuff from books in instead. Mm. And I think even those sculptures kind of became redundant. Sometimes it's just about kind of bringing your mindset into the space with you so that other people know what you mean. Maybe that's what my work's become, is like trying to get people on board with how I kind of perceive things right. so that they can see things on, on my terms as such. Yeah. Yeah. I've still got this thing about trying to make a film... I still feel like that's kind of what I thought I was going to do when I left art school. In the end, I thought I'd probably go into filmmaking right. somehow. What is a writer director? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's kind of slowly what I've been trying to do. You know, like I'm not necessarily the best at writing a narrative. Yeah. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll study kind of set design instead. Yeah. So that's what all this kind of practice has been. Or yeah. And that's what I remember though is this idea of set design because that was almost like solving a problem because if you but it's need the to be an art director, that runs through all of your work with set design. It's like you're creating these immersive zones mm -hmm. for your work to exist in and for people to inhabit so it's like your the audience activate your work in some ways you need an audience yes yes yeah and I guess that's where I don't know then now how to kind of pull back and frame that in a screen because I like there can be like this multiple entry points yeah. or that there's no beginning or an end I know a film doesn't necessarily have to have that but um yeah how do you how do you then put a limit on things? I studied painting and the reason why I could never paint a picture is because I could never figure out what would happen when I reached the edge of the canvas or something. It's like, how do oh, you, really? How do you know when to stop? What did what it frustrated you if you went if you paint the sides of the canvas or do you go to the back or does it have to continue or not even exactly not even as like wild as that. I was just like, well, if you want to put a picture on it, like what what do you do when you get to the edge, but you might still have something more you want to say, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, Oh, yeah, let's just make a sculpture instead and then put that in the room and then the edge of the room is like the edge of the canvas in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
yeah, it's more like that. There's a lot of themes that come up in your work, a lot of motifs. Uh, the main one that I love is legs and the leg and the boot that goes on the leg, like the thigh length, knee length boot. Where does that fascination come for, from for the legs? Because when I first saw your work, it was like these acrylic spread legs and the floating uh, wooden legs on like on like um, poles. And then you've got the wavy boots, which you make out of marble or jesmonite. And then there's drawings of it. What, what is that? Do you know what it was? It was like when I first left college, then I was looking for a way to get a sculpture off the floor, but I didn't want a plinth. And I thought, all right, what can I put the sculpture on just to get it about, you know, three feet off the floor? Yeah. And then it seemed to be like a pair of legs was the nearest thing to hand. You know, so I remember going to like the, the wood yard at the back of the studio and like getting some crappy wood out of there and then cutting a pair of legs out and then just sticking, putting the work on top of that. And then it suddenly was like, oh, I don't maybe need the thing on the top because the legs are kind of doing quite a lot already. So mm-hmm. they can be, they were things which were quite expressive and did a lot of kind of narrative work or animating work to things, but without actually having to do very much because it's a body and it was usually clear it was like a female body because... So do you think that people can project onto that already for what it is, what what they think they see in it? Yeah, I guess that's it. But they were also, you know, it wasn't clear um, necessarily what age they were or what ethnicity they were or... Um, you know, like you couldn't, you know, it's not like your, your face, your hands are so expressive that they can give so much away yeah. from you. They were kind of giving you a lot, but withholding a lot of information at the same time. Yeah, there was still like an ambiguity. Within yeah. I also think if you think back to, for example, the Chisholm Hill show you did in 2008 and then the First Sight show later, 2012, like those legs almost became a kind of vehicle for um, materials, for your kind of exploration of materials. Like you were talking about Peche earlier in your your admiration for his use of materials. But that's something that, again, like the iconography of those legs, Mm. but also something that's very unique to you is this idea of like using um, maybe like oat cakes or seaweed or lichen or, you know, these kind of natural food products or um, you know, na- n- n- uh, things that exist within nature yeah. contrasted with, you know, the perspex of the legs that become almost like a framing device to sort of show these materials really up close somehow. Like, is is that correct? Yeah, I'd say so. Because, you know, sometimes you might see something of interest around you in the street or whatever, and it's like, how do you frame... How can you frame that? Like, how can you, And how can I frame that in the way in which I think it's really special to like how could you kind of I don't know jazz it up or ham it up in such a way that how can you make that into something theatrical like Mm. the theatricality of looking I think is really key to me so I think remember looking at these kind of sushi nori those kind of sheets of seaweed that you Mm. get and then thinking oh it's quite like the wool of a Chanel suit like how can you how could I get that you know but it's going to fall apart so just if you put it between these kind of layers of perspex and put them in a leg then it also reminds me of these kind of photo frames that we would have around the house when I was younger. You know, yeah, those kind of hinged... frames. Yeah. Used to so, get them from Athena. Yeah. Yes. Long R.I.P. Athena. I think I always really <laughs> liked the idea, you know, like when you have, like, minerals or crystals or rocks that have kind of old insects hidden inside yeah. or, like, fossils. Like mm-hmm. Jurassic Park. Like, yeah, that kind of, like... in amber. Natural yeah. history kind of thing. And even that, that um, watermelon that you made as an addition, I think, for uh, Hepworth Wakefield, the way it's, like, cut into mm-hmm. the fruit and then you see the inside through that kind of glass like object like that has that same kind of it's almost like capturing a moment in time or something 
Yeah, I'd say. I quite like the idea of, um, I think often, like as well as there being kind of these like, fixed motifs, sometimes there's motifs like that about how, how do we capture time or what kind of speed of something might there be. Like if you think about glass, it's just been this kind of, it's gone from being a solid to a liquid and then cooled back into a solid again. So it's about how you've captured this material at a certain moment. Like yeah. a piece of sushi is like sushi seaweed's been, you know, in the sea, then it's rolled and it's flattened and it's dried. Now it's stuck in a sculpture. These kind of things of trapping things at certain moments. And Are like you worried about processes? things breaking down? I just close my eyes. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> what did these glass blowers think when you came to them with this design for this volcanic business table? Oh, they were great. Were they? They were really great. Yeah, and there was um, the the one that I kind of did most of the correspondence with. He was French. I don't really speak any French. I like kind of cafe French, and mm-hmm. my his English was not so great. So we kind of. He communicated with me through these kind of really amazing set of drawings that were these kind of cartoons of um, how the process would be. So these kind of I can't I can't it doesn't really work. But like someone but... like someone with cartoon eyes blowing a big pipe with yeah. a glass at the end, and exactly. then how that would, how that would move from the next stage to the next stage. Yeah, and I think in the same way there was that yes with Ruba about the but it was like you know this is a yes. You know, someone who can communicate really clearly through yeah. cartoon drawing about yeah. what it means to make a table out of glass this is definitely someone yeah. i can work with and that must cost a lot of money to fabricate something like that how, how do you fund these projects in your mind in my mind yes. easily, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when it comes to fruition it's like well a table like that going to like these kind of genius glass makers must mm. cost money this was a commission that was um from a swiss watch company called constantin vacheran mm-hmm. so they they funded all of it and it wow. was something that was initially meant to go into their collection afterwards so i think you know there are i don't know there's ways to kind of keep navigate that how do they feel about that they're not going into their collection and going into another designers um i think they they offered it back to me shall we say they said oh we you can have it back now and then suddenly you're kind of left with a big glass table yeah to store so then i was very lucky that it got to go to the leon biennial so then it traveled straight to leon and then from leon it went to the hepworth right 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 yeah because storing works a nightmare there's something that really interesting in that whole topic um that i remember a period of time i think when you stopped working with ibid because they went to los angeles and then you were very um sort of firm in the idea that you were just going to have time out from being in the gallery system and you made a number of years where you were just like on your own in the studio and yes you continued doing public exhibitions and I guess that's probably how you survived because you were getting commissions from different spaces that might give you budgets to create shows but you really sort of managed to somehow just focus on your art on your terms mm-hmm. and I remember having so much respect for that and the kind of patience you had and you knew that's what you needed at that time and, and there's so a- many people must have questioned you at that time I know I did at one point go who are you going to go with next and I remember you looking at me and going like I don't know I don't want to be with anyone at the minute and mm-hmm. I remember being a bit like oh really okay and it felt like you put yourself in no man's land happily it's like you as an artist mm-hmm. without like representation that was so brave to do at the time right it didn't feel brave it didn't feel it felt like the only way to do things I think the relationship I had with that gallery at the time we'd both started working together we were both very young mm. as a gallery mm. and as an artist mm. and you know it didn't it, we were no longer thinking the same way about the directions we wanted to take and then I think I was I had some just amazing peers you know like I had people I could trust that I could speak to about things Yeah, you know and I think that's kind of one of the most important things and then 
you know, other stuff, yeah, just kind of came up along the way. And, um, yeah, it was it was actually, you know, I'm happy now with things, but also it was really great and it was good to know that all the decisions that were coming my way were, um, or that I was making were on my terms and mm. everything was about looking each other in the eye and there was never, it was all so straightforward in a way. You know, no, there was, it was always just like, if someone wanted to ask a question about the work, they had to come to me. Yeah. Which is quite empowering, really. If you think of younger artists these days, often the question I get asked as a gallerist is, how do I get a gallery? Mm-hmm. How do I get shows? All this stuff. And they're all concerned with almost having the representation as if that's the end goal. But what I think a lot of people forget is the representation is something that comes when the artist has kind of formed their universe. And it's kind of actually not the key. In, in having gallery representation it's more about trying to develop your practice and your mm. collaborations and connections with other artists actually um would you do the same thing again if i needed to then i would yeah, yeah. i don't know if it would work in the same way you know i was also younger so i had yeah. more energy you know you know like i had to do so many other things to finance my life at yeah. that time which i could have well you teach as well then. now right yeah 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 well that's you know teaching's not unfortunately it's not quite enough to kind of keep everything going but mm. it's also good because then it kind of keeps you talking yes. i think just that's i think that's one really great thing about um teaching is that you're constantly having to think on your feet yeah and check your own ideas as well as what the students are presenting with you because they're not wrong they're kind of what's coming next and yeah. so yeah has being a mum changed your work yeah yeah in every way i guess you just have like a completely different set of priorities mm. which is um quite tough to kind of get one's head around it's kind of great but also difficult too have you had any work that you can actually link to an experience of being with your kid that you've gone oh, i'm gonna create art from this not 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 so much not in that way i guess like time wise i remember like the, the sculpture center the sculpture center exhibition was like absolutely i remember like having two hours between like breastfeeds and having to like go to Aaron Angel's Troy Town Pottery do some ceramics and then go back again it's like all right I've got two hours does it really matter what I'm gonna make yeah maybe but also let's just get on with it and I know that's kind of a cliche that you hear people say it's like it's not so much that you make decisions quicker it's just you're kind of operating in a different way right yeah you're more it's more like strict isn't it the amount of time you have or streamlined do you streamline everything I'm not streamlined I I never I never (laughs) figured out streamlining something but um you just kind of roll with it. You just kind of have to kind of change gear, but not in a way of speeding up. You just, I don't know, you just run out of time for other things. It's like, well, that's that done then. So yeah, yeah, time yeah. to go back. Interesting. So talking of teaching, next year, sorry, this year, mm-hmm. 2020, you're going to be teaching at Open School East in Margate. Yes, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, and that's quite a unique thing, isn't it? Because they, A, it's free, the education, like you, you apply, um, to to study there and they have different programs including a master's program which is what i think you'll be teaching on um like the equivalent of a master's and is it a year it's a year-long program and it's got a lot to do with public programming and kind of collaboration so i imagine as a teacher that's going to be quite a fascinating thing but i just heard because i've just joined the board of trustees but they were saying that they actually allow the teacher to to dictate and curate and create the program completely so there's no kind of fixed rules as such no, I think, and I think that's also the best kind of teacher that I can be when it comes to lesson plans. That's uh, not happening, but you know. But um, <laughs> I think one thing you, I didn't learn when I was at art school is what an artist actually does. Right. You kind of get you kind of learn about art history a little bit, or you learn about I don't know some other stuff, and you learn about being with other people, but you don't actually know on a day to day basis what artists do. 
Yeah. It's quite a mystery, in fact. You know, you just kind of leave and then... Have you worked it out now? Uh, I'm doing something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I got a feeling I'm not doing the thing that other people are doing. Right. So I, see, I'm always checking when I see friends, like, what time do you wake up in the morning? Like, what time do you go to the studio? Yeah, what, what time? Yeah. yeah how, how many emails do you respond to every day? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. but then I think part of that is that it's so personal and that everyone's such a different personality that you have to just find what that is for yeah. you. Yeah. It's unique, and, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you like teaching? I like talking to people. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. I think, um, I really, I think I've, I've been, I've had a lot of really great teaching roles. I think it would have just happened. I think I've had lots of really good timing. I don't want to just sound like I'm very lucky or something, but you know, like I, mean, I had a really good teaching post at Chelsea one year where I could go in and I did a lot of mime with these students. It was great and we had wow. a lot of fun. And then we went to Oslo and did a mime performance there. Then we came back and did something else. And I could also, there was also budget to bring in my collaborators, like the people, like the hip hop dancers that I mm. worked with or my kind of people that I really admire, you know, like to get in Alex Padfield, who's like a young artist and get them in to speak to my students about what they do. So I get the benefit of spending time with someone I admire and combining that with like sharing my excitement with that person with some students too. Mm -hmm. So it's often me not really teaching. It's just more like showing other people the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's what will happen at Open School East too, that I think I framed it that we're going to make a film. You know, I'm always forever pitching this film. Idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to make a film which is somehow connected to the idea of how muses function, you know, like what, what a muse is and what a muse does somehow. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, yeah great. Yeah, we'll I just see. saw a new book about that. Um, it has Frida Kahlo on the cover and somebody else I can't remember and it was about this idea that what is the muse and in, in, in the history... Historical yeah, muses. historical muses yeah. and how people like Frida almost resisted... Being the muse. Being the muse somehow and yeah. tried to subvert it. And yeah, it's quite an interesting feminist yeah. book. So you talk about mime again. It feels like <laughs> theatre and opera and ballet <laughs> are again huge motifs in your work. Theatricality, what we were saying. Yeah. Do you go and see a lot of dance and ballet? And when was the first time you really realised that this was something important to you? I don't think I've ever seen a ballet. Really? No. Too fancy. <laughs> so interesting <laughs> but what is it What? when did you realise that like dance was quite a big or like movement especially but also you've referenced people like John Travolta yeah, in like your work 1970s like, so, yeah kind of 70s and... disco that kind of seems some sort of undercurrent within like your work dance and movement I guess so yeah it's true it's true I can't, I can't deny I can't deny that but <laughs> I guess often when I there's like a difference between like a reference and something that I'm interested in. Like, you know, like you can bring in John Travolta as like a cultural motif, right? Like yeah. I'm not actually into John Travolta yeah, yeah. personally. Yeah. But he has so many, he's quite got quite a clear, or that 1970s figure has quite a clear yeah. cultural reading. Yeah. Like, you know what that means? It's kind of like this cheesy suit. It's kind of a particular type of masculinity. This kind of like, I don't know plastic clothes you know it kind of has all these different readings so when you drop that into a work it kind of places it in a particular space and I think that ballet does that too you know like if you if you're re- you know if you're kind of creating ballet that's something but if you're referencing ballet it also speaks of something which is kind of I don't know more specialized something more refined about a t- particular type of person who might go to the ballet about a t- particular type of person who might do ballet and yeah. also it speaks to those people who are not part of that too it kind of makes these kind of like space so it's like a class divide in some ways yeah i guess so yeah 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 and yeah. also in the in some of your uh 
earlier work, you you included imagery of people like Karl Lagerfeld, but it wasn't the Karl Lagerfeld that we knew at that time, who was like an older man with grey hair and kind of like very eccentric clothes and everything, Mm. like black and white clothes. But he was, it's a black and white photograph of him, but as a young man, kind of very like, like you're saying, that kind of like 70s masculinity and some, is, is that the same kind of idea then? And also that print that we made for counter editions of like Pastor Man. Yeah. With these, you, you kind of use these these images. Alpha of males. Or, males, yeah. kind of very dreamy as well somehow. Mm-hmm. Kind of like perfect hair and... Perfect um, hair. Yeah. I guess I think I like those images of men because you couldn't really... They were just impervious. Like they didn't care. They didn't... Maybe not Karl Lagerfeld, maybe that was slightly different. But for the print that we made, like that guy... He was hot. He didn't he didn't care whether I kind of chopped him up or turned him into a photo. Like <laughs> he's still good looking, you know, like he's living in the bubble of his own handsomeness. Some yeah. immortalized in print and I don't know, probably been exploited elsewhere by, you know, everything else that's going on around yeah. him. But um I think the reason why I like that Karl Lagerfeld photo is that it was Karl Lagerfeld. He's kind of quite a typical kind of berry, beefy guy. Yeah. Which fits into kind of one stream of type of images, but when you realise that Karl Lagerfeld, this kind of like cultural producer and icon, had kind of passed through that image into something else, it's kind of like you know if you plant a seed, and that seed knows what's going to grow into, but if you kind of find a seed on the floor, you don't know what it's going to be. It could turn into anything, you know. This kind of idea that within one figure, there's like a history and kind of vice versa. Amazing. Yeah. I remember being so startled by that and just being like, that's Karl Lagerfeld. Like, it just felt so alien to me. It's almost like if you look at someone like Mark Jacobs as well, because he suddenly, yeah. he went through these different visual kind of representations of himself and became that kind of muscle guy. And he sort of really evolved, didn't he? It's kind of fascinating. Mm. Or even Lee McQueen. It kind of happens a lot in fashion, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. So we ask every guest that comes on two important questions. The first one is, if you could do an art heist, you could have any work of art in the world, whatever you choose, your touched on artwork, and you can keep it and we'll help you take it. And it can be like as big as you want or as small as you want. What it could would go it in your be? pocket or it, we can and bring a crane. What would that be and why? Um, I think I don't, I find, find it kind of difficult this because I don't really believe in like one off, you know, like you might change your mind along the way. Mm-hmm. But maybe I would have like a collection of skyscrapers. A collection of skyscrapers? Yeah. Wow. What do you mean? Like what? what from where? Ones? From what country? Or maybe from all over. You know, like oh. like a key ring. But so maybe I would have like the Burj Khalifa yes, and the Christ. Dubai. Yeah, the Chrysler Building. Beautiful. Um, I like that CCTV building that's in is in China. The is one it in Hong Kong or? Is it? I is it? Know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that one. I'm sorry. Would yeah. you take Canary Wharf, the original skyscraper? No, but I might have the monument because that used Ooh. to be the tallest building in London. The Fire of London monument. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. So I might yes. have that. Just have you some... been up inside that? No, of course not. You can go up it. I don't really like heights very much. Don't you? No, I just I don't know where I'd put them, <laughs> but you know, just around. I quite yeah. like this idea. You said a keyring, so you've no. got these giant. No, I know, but you said the word keyring, and I was just thinking like these giant you buildings do a hun- on a like, tiny scale. Like, honey, yeah. I shrunk the kids to all these skyscrapers. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> yeah, but no, I'd have them at real size, so you could compare them. Oh my god! Like cool. you do in them drawings. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Probably Burj Khalifa is still the tallest building in the world, isn't it? I think for now, yeah. For now. Yeah, I like that. It's a it's a finite experience that building gets to have until yeah, someone yeah, else yeah. comes along until Anthea Hamilton comes along and just a giant <laughs> yeah. a bump, giant a skyscraper yeah. key ring yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all of them together yeah, yeah. good one amazing yeah. the other question we ask every mm-hmm. guest is what is your favourite colour oh my eight year old niece asked me this question yesterday so I know really I don't know what the colour's called it's kind of like a pale almost neon violet lilac colour ooh a neon lilac violet. Yeah, kind of a neon, but also pastel. It's kind of a colour that does quite a lot. Have you used it in your work yourself? I've got one um, 
crayon that's that, that colour that I like a lot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what, what do you use the crayon on? Nothing, I just look at it. Really? Yeah, I really like it. As like a sculptural form? No, I just, you know, just look at it. Just, just like as an object. Do you, collect, yeah. do you collect things? I know you have an archive of mm-hmm. images, but do you collect anything else in your life? I try not to, but then I, but then I kind of binge and then buy loads of stuff. So I've just bought loads of glass berries. Glass like, berries? Like, Glass blackberries and glass, but like nineteen seventies, eighties, like retro ones. No, or? I think they're new. Are they? They're new, yeah. But like yeah. single g- berries, or are they clumps? Like no, used to singles. Go... Like a sing- that's the single one. Like you Where'd you get them from? from? All over the place. <laughs> but what Belgium? These these but, ones come from. So and what, how do you display them in like a bowl as if they're fruit? You know, you should go to people's houses and they've like them ceramic oh, yeah. bowls of like ceramic fruit, which was just so random. Is yeah. it like that sort of thing? I don't know what I'm going to do with them. They're they're on bits of metal at the moment. Sometimes I don't know if things are for me, yeah, for my life, or if things are going to be artworks or somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. So I just kind of enjoy them for that. And then, wow. Yeah, it's like actually, the crayon. I mean, it's like, that's that interesting because that makes me think about something in the shows since like the early you know exhibitions you've done. There's always been this sense of looking and the way you create an, a, a way you can walk through a, an exhibition and kind of there's an idea of the gaze or something but like it's very much about looking and like with the kimonos and even um with i remember your husband and you nicholas Byrne, you guys did like a fashion project years and years ago that i i, <laughs> I actually have still the rope mm-hmm. um and even that that the, the idea of like wearing things that you if you wore them people are going to look at you do you know what i mean like mm-hmm. the 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 things you're highlighting are very well, like visual. Well, the brick suit you were saying. Yeah, or like, the brick yeah. suit, exactly. Yeah. How, what what is that all about? Like, is is that deliberate or is that just a the to sort of try and make people look? I think I, I think it's just that I know that people do look anyway, which sounds like quite a vague thing to say. Yeah, yeah. And it's just kind of like giving them their eyes a place to pause on something, in a way. Like yeah, and I guess it. if you're going to a gallery, you, you're there to look, aren't you? Yeah, and it's normally quite paced. It's like, there's one thing, and there's another thing, yeah. and there's another thing. So understanding, again, it's like about a tempo. Like, I kind of read, like, what a tempo. Yeah, again, I read, like, like a dance what, rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's nice, like, with the dance thing, that you can, like, pick up, like, a four-to-the-floor disco beat from one thing and then, like, transpose that to Tate Britain, you know? Like, you can yeah. get people to kind of move in a disco way or, like, in a R&B way rather than in a kind of a, a museum kind of ploddy way yeah. yeah do you ever have ever in your mind what you want people to take away from your work when they experience it no never i guess i know that i see things in one particular way and normally i've like spoken things out with enough people that i can understand where things will be misunderstood mm. and as long as i'm all right with those misunderstandings mm. even if i definitely if i don't agree with them mm. i understand that so be it it's not it's not I don't know it's like this thing about empathy again it's like well I guess I feel like this project the squash which was quite like a big project for me Mm. it's like I knew that how the audience were going to see it Mm. that were coming into the museum was going to be really different to how I and the people who made the project Mm. felt about it and so we had to kind of just let that be but you always see yourself as the first viewer right yeah. 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 And you had a bit, of, I, I think I read you had a bit of a a conundrum when you became like Instagram fodder for the butt because mm-hmm. people were having pictures by the entrance of the butt or next to the butt because mm. it was great. And in some ways that's an amazing um, uh, celebration of what you created, but also you found that quite troubling in some ways. Mm, or it was only troubling that 
then there would be people thinking that I'd done that on purpose. You know, like the idea that I would... Like controversial. Oh, like oh. you created an artwork for Instagram or like something. Like a sensation. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah, which I guess even if that, even if Instagram wasn't there, it's that same thing as the Turner Prize, it's the sensationalism, yeah. Yeah. Of art, which is not something that I go for. I think things can be kind of visually surprising, yeah. but not necessarily sensation, you know, a mm. sensationalist experience. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm kind of, despite all of the things which I do, I'm really against gimmicks. And so the idea that it could have been read as that, I think that was the thing that was annoying. Yeah, I think you have the potential, though, to... What I loved about what you said earlier is that you liked to stay... You came above the radar and now you went below the radar. But you, you, I think you have the ability, as Anthony Hamilton, to create work that is really uh, attention-seeking. But you, but also that connects on a mass level. Yes, I exactly. Think people... But I think what you do is you really edit yourself to, to be really uh, pure with what you want to put out there in the world. And I think that's... An amazing thing, amazing that you do have that ability in yourself. Because I feel like you you have these ideas, but you you really st- streamline, which you don't think you do. But I think you really streamline these ideas to being the purest of what they can be. Mm. I'd say that that would be great if that's yes. what's happening. <laughs> I think it is. But actually, earlier on, we were talking about that film from mm-hmm. like one of the first things you ever did after you left college, which was you. It's like a VHS tape where you're. It's like a still shot, um, one shot. Uh, film and it's you singing somewhere over the rainbow but really slowed down and it was in a show that I saw at Tate curated by Sonia Boyce the British artist and that really in a way is the kind of like beginning of you know your career wasn't it like and it, was that one of the first times you were exhibited yeah and it was in Tate in Tate in yeah tape, yeah and it was a film that I made when I was 19 so yeah. I guess you go from graduating to kind of ticking one kind of big thing off the list yeah in a way and I really still stand by that film I think it's that thing of choosing a very particular thing from popular culture that should hopefully read to as many people as possible and then understanding how that you can personally connect with that or how you kind of adopt things and then make them your own yeah and then you have a very personal relationship to them but other people can do that too it's kind of like I don't know this spinning around of something that's not mm. a very good way to say it but no it is though and that's that's interesting because i think like what russell's saying there's some sort of purity in that work mm. which is almost like a bit like um this idea of the grain mm. <laughs> and then what that grows into but there was something there in that work which has continued throughout it's like the the kind of dna in a mm. way of what, mm. what you became and even the way that you slowed down the audio in that video mm-hmm. so it's kind of making you respond to this very iconic song that we all know in Inside Out, mm-hmm. you know, you've heard it millions of times through our lives, um, especially, you know, being born at the time we've all been born. So it, it, you're sort of making people, you know, look again, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a wonderful thing. Yeah, if you can get people to do that, I guess that's... You're winning as an artist. Yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of young artists listen to this. What advice would you give? And I know that you're a teacher, so you must give advice day in, day out. But what advice would you give to a young artist listening of how to get into the art world god my advice is terrible go on because <laughs> i always say to my students like don't pay attention to this just do what you want and then they all end up like having to redo bits of the course and you basically made their lives harder <laughs> <laughs> don't listen to them don't they're like yeah them. let's rebel and they're like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> i've just wasted another x amount of money on this yeah, course that's, yeah. that's the bizarre thing though about creative education is that like they have all these rules and strict guidelines because they have to prove that people have actually learned something yeah. but then creativity isn't really you can't really you can't cage creativity yeah exactly exactly i don't know i think um 
just go for it. I think never, don't compromise. I think that's it. I think that's something that I tried not to do for as long as possible. It's like, just don't, if you, if you feel like a compromise run coming near you, just like run for the hills away from that. And uh, yeah, I think you should know that people are interested. I think that's difficult to know when you're a younger artist is that people are actually really interested in what you do yeah. and that people are really looking. Like, right, you guys are looking all the time, right? Yeah. yeah. And you're interested and just to kind of keep going and keep doing shows and putting your stuff out there wherever it is people put their work these days and wait and be patient and in one year it's not a long time and don't expect to make money for ever <laughs> ever in your life ever. <laughs> yeah. and something that I've heard from a number of different artists including Zadie um, Char oh. who was a previous guest on our podcast actually and who I worked with at the gallery a bit before she um, started exhibiting extensively but her friendship with you has been really like um, important to her and I think it really helped her um, you know feel like she wasn't alone because I think some of the concerns that she has are not the same but they're in a similar kind of you know you're both coming from a similar place in some way and um, I think that's really important to remember as well is the idea of like talking to other artists and friendships and and how you can look out for each other your peers your peers are really important right yeah absolutely i think a lot of my time is punctuated by very long kind of cups of tea sessions with people Mm. and they're really important like i need to kind of see there are certain people i need to see to kind of make yeah to make sense of things yeah 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 Yeah, and the art of conversation yeah (laughs) what is next for anthea hamilton what is next some really exciting things one thing that i hoped i'd be able to tell you about but i can't because it's not uh, announced yet and then I'm working on a performance for the Walker in Minneapolis oh wow yeah what a lot lo- along the lines of the squash or something completely different who knows who knows it's really soon and uh, yeah as ever things take me forever to kind of resolve. is it from a found image I don't know oh wow I don't know. there's one I thing think, I, I, yeah. a quote that you said though about that found image of the man dressed as the squash mm-hmm. vegetable is that you wanted to make work from this image uh, for what it may feel like you wanted mm-hmm. to make work that made what this image felt like and that's for me, just like an amazing way of approaching making work is that you look at a picture and you think, "How? What would this feel like realized in the world?" Is that is that a theme that goes through most of your kind of ideas? Yeah, I'd say so. Like I'm quite somehow, I don't know, I quite like the physicality of things mm-hmm. or things being real, you know. Like, but also, I know that. We don't often get to touch things, I was kind of repeating that, but we don't get to touch things in museums, and so things have to satisfy us enough through our eyes, in a way, that you can kind of feel what that might feel like. Or, I guess what was nice about that image is you could imagine yourself in that position, or you can imagine looking at that person, and maybe no one having any idea what was going on, too. It was really complex, that image, I'm kind of still unravelling it, and there was lots of other kind of ideas that came up through that, but... Mm. Um, Where are they now, the costumes? They're just in storage. I think because they're not artworks, really. They kind of, every, the whole of that project kind of exists in a funny realm that kind of really just existed for six months in a way. So, yeah, they're just kind of being looked after carefully. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's really open, that image, isn't it? Like, it's it's something that there's not necessarily like a verbal response to you, but you can kind of get get what's going on with it. Mm. Maybe just simply because simply it's stripes and stripes are kind of visually mm. successful mm. also mm. yeah the Minneapolis you're working on this project yeah and that's the next thing on your radar and this other thing this super secret exciting thing you can't talk about yeah they're both t- two really new things you know to do something right. in the US I'm oh they're both in the US one of, the, one of them's here but okay. a really different type of project and the Amazing. other one is um, 
Yeah, yeah. Just so I guess, like to work in the UK, you kind of know the audience if you're British, and you're you know, you kind of know how people kind of react to things yeah, because yeah. You, you you feel the same way about stuff. But um, the British sensibility. Yeah, the yeah. British sensibility, queuing, things like that. Um, <laughs> we love a queue. Yeah. yeah. Um, what what is yeah. success to you as well? I don't know. I guess there's. I have maybe have an idea of maybe what other people think success is. I don't know. Are you, you mean on a very personal level? Yeah. Yeah. Or because, you know, you think of you now being this international artist who's getting opportunities to show in museums or public spaces or private galleries all over the world or biennales. Mm. So on the outside, that's probably what the world would think is success. Mm-hmm. But to you, I, I've got a feeling that probably isn't the end goal, even though, yes, you want to communicate and have a platform for your work, I guess. But, mm. but yeah, I was just I, intrigued. I guess common sense is- commonsensically when I was studying when I did my MA and that was in painting and I wasn't making painting and I was making all these kind of sculptures made from bits of I don't know bits and pieces and ETs and things like that then Mm. I knew that I couldn't I knew that my work would have to be in museums I knew that I wanted my work to be in museums always I think I always knew that that if I was going to be an artist I wanted work to be in museums so many people could see it maybe that was egotistically but it was also just for the kind of for an, kind of the broad as broad a conversation as a work could have right. as such and um so that I get to do that it's like oh that's what I meant so good you know yeah um but I don't know what success is I guess being able to keep to keep the work being interested to other people and to oneself like you know just to not go on repeat because then that's not being successful that's just I don't know responding to other people's ideas of what you do or something yeah mm. yeah so growing I guess over time yeah yeah on your one's own terms yeah amazing cool. mm. yeah. well looking forward to continuing this journey together because yeah. like it's really bizarre how I feel like we've both well, I guess we're a similar age as well though mm. but it, it is really exciting to sort of be really uh, catch, catch up now in 2020 audience yeah. for your work yeah um i've really enjoyed it so thank you very much mm-hmm. and um for everyone listening you can see images of many of the artworks we have discussed in today's episode at our instagram which is at talk art have you got an instagram oh, yeah i don't really use it you don't no. i was gonna say i thought you did but you don't post much do you oh it's so stressful I <laughs> really yeah yeah i need to find a theme grapes oh, little, yeah. little glass grapes oh, yeah, and maybe. berries just everyone I'll get hit that today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hit that so hard you on can, your grid. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is your Instagram? At Hamilton Anthea or something? Yeah. It's the other way around, isn't it? Yeah, Hamilton Anthea. Yeah. Good one. Um, and we'll be back very soon. Thank you very much, Thanks Anthea. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Anthea. Bye. 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.